He won Journalist of the Year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's National Review Online's Jim Garrett. How do you like me now? She's a front-page contributor to Red State and a broadcast professional who calls life the way she sees it. Yeah! Crank up the radio! Very interesting! She's Mickey White. How do you like me now? This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by Facebook's Murder and Suicide Livestream Monitoring Program. Would you like to work at one of the world's biggest and most influential tech companies? Well, today's your lucky day. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has just announced plans to hire 3,000 new employees. So to sign up and you too can say, I work for Facebook, monitoring live streams to see who's broadcasting murders and suicides live. Yes, what could be more exciting or invigorating than watching live streams all day and desperately trying to call police or an ambulance as you watch real-life violence and mayhem unfold right before your eyes? Ask about our intensive employee post-traumatic stress syndrome counseling, Facebook bringing life's worst horrors straight to your web browser. Welcome again, once again to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And Mickey, boy, you thought the fire Festival was bad, huh? <laughs> Look, Jim, I, I am just so sad that I did not think of it first. That's well, all I have to say. program or shipping uh, wealthy uh, millennials off to a desert island with nothing to let them reenact uh, Lord of the Flies. I love the idea of sending all the millennials off Charging them a significant amount of money and then letting them fight it out. <laughs> I, I was thinking this is the perfect like little um, laugh at people story. And usually it's considered mean to laugh at the for- misfortune of others. But Mickey, as far as we know, nobody died. Right. Uh, no one has caught dysentery. No one's lost a limb or anything. There's a bunch of people who are willing to spend minimum $1,500. And most of them were spending $6,000, $7,000, $8,000 per person. To go to a, a music festival out in the middle of nowhere on this Caribbean island and to do basically zero due diligence. It's the first year they've done it, no checking into it. They get there and there's nothing there. There's FEMA tents. It's, it's an absolute disaster. The bands are canceling left and right. You know, it, these are people who have more money than they know what to do with. I'm just not going to, you know, feel that bad for them. I'm but actually going to laugh a, at their misery. Wasn't it oh, a absolutely. charity thing too? Weren't they meant like making donations to something in the course of doing this? Wasn't it a feel-good attempt to enjoy themselves and then claim they were being good to somebody? It's completely possible I that there, there was, was some a charity attention. That's but the kind of charity my, thing that, that liberals do. <laughs> well, there almost always has to be some kind of charity if they're going to sell booze and whatnot. Absolutely. So for licensing purposes, they almost always tie to some charity. I think it's fascinating that they're now suing Ja Rule and the other organizers because it didn't turn out to be what they thought it was going to be. Now, this is all well and fair, I suppose. But the reality is what Jim said is so true in the sense we're going to talk a little bit more about social media later in the show. But the truth of the matter is the influencers that encouraged people to go This is where the FCC is getting involved now with people being on Instagram and the brands and how they're associated with them. I like to call it the Kardashian law (laughs) because people assumed that because people are dumb, people assumed then that these, you know, Kendall Jenner and Gigi Hadid and others that were like, yeah, we're going to Fire Festival. It's going to be awesome that they were going as a participant just like they were, not that they were a paid advertisement for this particular festival. If 
if Kendall Jenner says it, it has to be true. And we all know that Pepsi can stop riots. Uh, well, look, it's been a bad month for Kendall. <laughs> what can I say? Um, she showed her ass literally at that gala the other night. So, you know, it's been a little bit of a rough couple of weeks for her. But overall, I think the kid will be all right. I think she'll be fine. Um, but when you look at this particular festival, it reminds me a great deal of like Bonnaroo and and Coachella and some of the other festivals throughout the country that people have gone to for years. But again, for whatever reason, these people thought that this was going to be plush, that it was going to be, you know, absolutely over the top five star service everywhere. And they show up and there's not even any toilets. So. Again, I feel like this is a free pass to go ahead and laugh at their misery. They just assumed, based on the price, what it would be like. <laughs> it is a teachable moment. Um, a a hard-learned lesson. So if Kendall Jenner is having the worst month uh, in, the, in the world of celebrities and pop culture, Mickey, I'm going to nominate the guy who's having the best month um, and in, anything, in anything. It's got to be probably The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, one of your favorites. Because not only does he have... Uh, Baywatch coming out. Uh, mm-hmm. Moana is now out on either DVD or it's out on demand. It was making Miss Campaign Spot weep. Uh, she loved it so much. And Troy's uh, in that too. Right. Uh, I was about to say this is the. It's like how many? <laughs> it's kind how, of the perfect cartoon. Yeah. How many members of Dwayne Johnson's family can we put in this movie? Because <laughs> uh, they're brothers-in-law, right? Or yes. yes. Okay. Troy uh, is married to the Rock sister. So I want to ask you how many figures in America could have somebody like Michael Moore saying that he really hopes uh, The Rock runs for president. And in the same month, he's on the cover of National Review with my distinguished colleague David French writing uh, The Celebrity We Need. Talk right? about living right. Yeah. He's having kind of a Schwarzenegger moment. Everyone loves him for a little while. Well, in truth, I will love The Rock forever. And if he ever goes into politics, I'll vote for him too. I don't care. Um, but I think that he is one of those celebrities that he seems to genuinely appreciate the position that he's in and he lets people know it like from it. He worked really hard to get where he was. And I think part of that is because he has an athletic background and obviously, you know, WWE being what it is, it's a mix of sports, I suppose, um, and entertainment, but he was able to be really up close and personal with his fans throughout that time. And I think because he was, you know, a, a failed, quote-unquote, NFL player, a failed football player. He's someone who didn't get his dream, instead got a whole new one. Yeah. And he seems to really relish that. I have to uh, seriously recommend my colleague uh, David French's piece because, one, it's it's an interesting biographical piece, but I think there's a lot of uh, good points, including the fact that The Rock has spent so much time pretty distanced from a lot of the traditional causes you see uh, Hollywood celebrities involved in. He says, look, He understands a core truth that there is nothing wrong and a lot right with sheer unmitigated fun. Not everything has to have a message, capital M. Not everything has to reveal larger truth, capital L, capital T. Sometimes a man just has to shoot down an attack helicopter with a minigun. Not for social justice and not for individual liberty, but because it's a cool thing to do. <laughs> Mickey, Dave, you look at, I, I feel pretty proud of my writing at National Review over the years, but I looked at that and just felt writer envy that I had not <laughs> that sentence. I wonder if The Rock is going to be that guy that everyone thought for a little while Schwarzenegger was that could transcend politics through sheer popularity and not 
be held accountable and not be pigeonholed and not be tucked into a, a pre-political box and end up being successful in politics because everyone loves him so much. Is there still room for a guy like that today in politics? I don't know, but if anyone can do it, I believe that he can yeah. because he is the ultimate male. Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. Um, he's likable. He's funny. He can play the serious, the tough guy. He can play the funny, goofy guy. Um, he has no problem showing his pecs. I mean, really, it's, it's really a win-win all the way around. I wish that we could have, like, an entire channel dedicated to nothing but The Rock. Time. <laughs> the Rock cable makes channel. about You're four movies a year. TV. Give him another 10 years and there will be 24-hour programming. So the, the I other, like the I, way you think. Something I did not know until I read uh, David French's piece. It says, part of the legend of The Rock is this May 1st, 2011 tweet. Just got word that will shock the world. Land of the free, home of the brave, damn proud to be an American, all caps. And the date may sound familiar to some folks. Others may have forgotten. This is at 10.24 p.m. 45 minutes later, major networks began reporting that the U.S. had killed Osama bin Laden. Uh, and it wasn't announced until uh, a good you know, hour later uh, that it was confirmed and President Obama announced it. So how did The Rock know in advance? He had a cousin in the SEALs, but he won't confirm his source. Um, so and also he's obviously been very active in veterans' causes. and, and uh, He, he actually does a lot of the touring and entertaining of the troops. He even does a, a rock salute to the troops on Holy television. Cow, did you guys see the thing he did in Hawaii for Pearl Harbor anniversary? Did you see that show he hosted and put on and entertained? He was doing Elvis impersonations. I mean, stand-up comedy. He was the ultimate happy, funny, talented host. And he didn't do a bad job with the singing even. Yeah, he sings in, sings in Moana, which was uh, perfectly fine because I – I would um, watch him sleep. Yeah, this is campaign <laughs> spot is uh, I, I, I tease her for being pop culture illiterate. It's not quite that case, but she's like, "Why does this voice sound so familiar?" She's watching this movie, and I'm like, "Because it's Dwayne Johnson, aka The Rock." And she's like, "Oh!" But then we start <laughs> singing, and I, I first I'm like, "They get somebody to come in and do the singing part for him," and then you can just kind of tell from the the pitch and the tone. No, that really is him singing, and um, it's he, he did a perfectly fine job. So like the real question is, considering all the different. Is there anything he can't do? He is awesome. In fact, the stupidest Twitter moment comes to mind. Uh, an unnamed uh, non-fan posts in Twitter, is it just me or do The Rock and Dwayne Johnson look an awful lot alike? <laughs> and that, uh, oh, that Twitter must have had 10 million views of people circulating it to make fun of that I guy. I look forward to the investigative series about <laughs> Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus. Oh, have they ever okay. been in the same room together at the same time? No, they have not. So there you go. <laughs> oh, my God. That is fantastic. And, you know, as someone who, I, again, I wasn't, I've never been someone who watched WWE. Um, I never got into wrestling, things like that. I still knew he, who he was even before he broke into acting and other things because he was just such a personality and, let's face it, obviously very hot. And I think that carries you a long way, that smile, that attitude, that there's something about him that literally almost glows in the sense that he's seemingly very appreciative of where he is, he understands where he is, and he's enjoying it. And I think that David French did a great job of describing it as someone who gets the fact that it's okay to have fun and be happy. It might be yeah, the so supplements making him glow. Just consider that. We have so many people that, you know, specifically in Hollywood, in other words, that are always into, you know, the thought-provoking roles and being deep and dark and brooding and moody. And he is the opposite of that. And I think that's 
a breath of fresh air for the entertainment industry, and I think it's a breath of fresh air pretty much every time he shows up on TV. Mm. And as, if, if there's you know one sentiment that comes through a lot of what he does besides the fun, it's gratitude. Mm-hmm. And maybe this happens when you blow out your knee and your, your dreams of playing in the NFL next to your teammate Warren Sapp uh, fall apart. Then you, maybe you look at every day as a gift, right? You look at, you know, if you, oh, I'm going to get to be a wrestler. Oh, I'm going to get to do a small acting role. Oh, I'm going to get to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And let's point out that the first acting he did in the Mummy sequel was... <clears throat> Not the finest. Can yes, I also point out that uh, that uh, wanting to be like Warren Sapp also turned out to not be a good idea. <laughs> it's never a good idea to be like Warren Sapp. Well, He's coming- gone from Sapp to Sappy. <laughs> well, coming up in the next segment, we are going to hit on some of the great new movies that are coming out. Some you've definitely been talking about. And some are starring pretty much everyone in Hollywood. We'll be right back. What's in this little blue egg that keeps Barbara Eden looking slim and trim? Ooh, there's only one answer to that. It's Legs Control Top Pantyhose. See, Legs slims and trims but doesn't buy. So you get comfort and control. Stretching, bending, standing, setting. There's one pantyhose that's always fitting. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show, where we now take you live to our exclusive coverage of a debate between Hodor and Groot. I am Groot. Hodor. I am Groot. Hodor. I am Groot. Hodor. I am Groot. Hodor. I am Groot. I am Groot. Not since Lincoln Douglas has there been uh, such dramatic origins. So stimulating. Yes, so uh, <laughs> by the time listeners hear this, the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, one of the rare movies that has the same title as its uh, as its soundtrack, um, is uh, is hitting theaters. I am excited, uh, Mickey. I just point out though. By the way, thank you, Dave, for the brilliant performance as Groot. I am Groot. Our, our first sketch <laughs> of the Jim Mickey Show. Um, <laughs> that that basically I already know. I'm going to spend. An ungodly amount of money buying my children baby Groot toys. Uh, the lovable tree character from the first movie has now been reborn as an utterly adorable CGI plaything that already my younger son has decided he, you know, needs to have every object that has baby Groot on. He didn't see the first one. We may see it at some point before the uh, theater. I got to see if it's kid appropriate. But uh. I don't know that that is just for children. In the sense that when the baby Groot showed up at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy, the original. I immediately went to Amazon to purchase one. <laughs> that did sound like somebody at, you know, at Marvel Studios says, are you kidding me? We just got millions of Americans to fall in love with a raccoon with a machine gun. We're Marvel. We can do anything. I'll bet you you couldn't create a houseplant superhero. <laughs> as much as I loved Groot, the character, and I did, when he became Baby Groot, it was all over. Like, all over. He skyrocketed to the top of my absolute favorite characters of all time. I could twist the uh, computer knob and get it to say, I am Groot. And, and, and in truth, you know, Mr. Byes loves the raccoon. Okay. He is a big fan of the raccoon. And that's great. I love the raccoon, too. You know, the audience, our listeners know, I love talking animal movies. <laughs> but 
And technically, Guardians of the Galaxy qualifies. Yes, that falls into that category for me. Uh, but in addition to that, I, I had no idea. And of course, Vin Diesel is actually the voice of Groot. Yep. Yes. And his I am Groot line. And, and, and that's fantastic. And I love, again, love the character, love the heroics of the character. But the fact that they made him a baby plant, <laughs> that's it. I mean, they win. He's the voice of the baby one, too. They twist the computer knob for him. See, that's why I say I can do it. <laughs> that's perfect. And, and you know, Jim, it may be a tactic that is set up specifically to separate parents from their money, as you've suggested with, the, you know, the, all the merchandising and memorabilia and things that you can purchase. But let's face it, it's great stuff. It, it, I, I will not. This is not a critique of the quality of it. I will point out it's very rare that you see a big budget superhero movie in which two of the big names involved in it never appear on film. Uh, Bradley Cooper does the voice of Rocket Raccoon. And as we pointed out, Vin Diesel, who I understand, the rumor is that Vin Diesel really wanted to have to play a superhero in, in one of the Marvel movies. And I almost, it almost feels like a twisted prank to say, okay, Vin, okay, Vin, we're going to have you in the movie. You're going to do the voice work. Oh, okay, what do I have to say? Well, there's not a ton of dialogue. <laughs> You'll have an easy time remembering the lines. I mean, of course, you know, we talked about The Rock in the last segment, but, you know, Vin has all of the, you know, Fast and Furious under his belt, and didn't he even do one of the X series at one point? Um, Like Triple X or one of those? Oh, yeah, he was the first Triple X. That's what I thought. And the third one. He's done the sequel to the sequel. The second one was uh, Ice Cube. Ice Cube, yeah. He was one and three. like the original. And so he's kind of had that brush with big screen, and obviously he's made bank off of all of these movies but if he wanted to be active in marvel it's he's one of those people who actually looks like a supervillain more than a superhero in my opinion um but it seems like there would have been a good casting role for him i think it's great though that as someone who has such an iconic look doesn't appear on screen and barely says anything it's entirely possible that when when vin diesel hangs up his biceps um, and, and decides to end his film career, that he's best remembered as the voice of Groot for saying only three words in entire, you know, God knows how many movies they end up making in this series. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> which, on the one hand, is very a testament to his talents and abilities and his vocal, uh, the power of his vocal performance. And it also says, your best performance, Vin, was when you never appeared. Um, Let me give you a corollary. Let me give you a corollary in, uh, in uh, Rogue One. Darth Vader appears and speaks because it's actually Star Wars 3.5, right? Something like that. And uh, he's 85 years old. Um, what's his name? The voice of Darth James Vader's 85. Yeah. James Earl Jones, 85, still doing it. Vin Diesel can still be Groot at 85. There's precedent. I'm Groot. Mm-hmm. I'm Groot. Uh-huh. I'm Groot. No! There is precedent for this. Uh, one of the things I absolutely love about Volume 2, and I'm so excited to see... Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Chris Pratt. I think he's another one of those guys that you kind of feel good when he succeeds. You like him. He's very mm-hmm. likable. He reminds me a little of Ryan Reynolds, um, except for a little bulkier. And I like that. Um, he, you know, he's a hunter. He's a fisher. He's a guy who genuinely seems to be a real guy's guy. And I like that about him. I love the cast. What I absolutely adore about the casting decisions for Volume 2 is they brought Kurt Russell in to play his dad. That is so on point. Yes, yes. The you know, wisecracking, rough around the edges, um, 
competent, but no, no, but no Mensa candidate. Uh, they could be related. Or... Like <laughs> yeah. they're so perfect. Uh, no, it's, it's one of the. I think probably one of the great challenges for this film will be when in Marvel announced most. I would say I, I was the comic collector back in the late '80s, early '90s. Guardians of the Galaxy got launched around then with a completely different lineup, and it was never one of Marvel's big-time titles. It was always kind of... So when they announced, oh, we're making a movie out of Guardians of the Galaxy, who? And they just, you know, Marvel just said, that, trust us, it'll be like Star Wars. And it kind of is. It's kind of superheroes in outer space and this uh, colorful... so much better and, than Star Wars. Yeah, Let me just bizarre, say, I'll take uh, all the hate. I'll ooh, take wow. it. Just bring it. But I will tell you straight up, Guardians of the Galaxy, one anyway, is better than any Star Wars movie I have ever seen. So if the first one is this like totally out of the blue, lovable collection of, of oddball characters, can you do the same thing in the second or will it just feel like more of the same? And, you know, that probably be, you know, I would say um, National Review has a new film critic, Kyle Smith, who uh, already has given it a terrible review. Uh, my understanding is, is that uh, uh, there are already sharp implements being prepared around the office. Uh, there were, there's a lot, of, a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy fans who were not happy to see Smith didn't like it. We'll see uh, this weekend and people will decide their own. But already One of people the things like, you always run into when you have a trilogy is sometimes the second movie mm-hmm. is more or less a vehicle to move the storyline forward. Yeah. And that can sometimes get people caught up. Also, how much do we know about this Kyle Smith character? <laughs> uh, Rough for the New York Post for a lot of time. I actually yeah, yeah, like yeah. him. He's, he's, no, he's no sunny bunch, let me tell you. Somebody who... <laughs> well, let me tell you this. The critics didn't like Stroker Ace either. It was a great movie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, so, so if you want to know about a movie that it seems, seems designed to stimulate the critics to the point of orgasm, uh, you'd probably have to look at the latest remake of Murder on the Orient Express, Starring Kenneth Branagh and basically every big name. Like, you thought the Harry Potter movies brought together every British actor you know? Um, this is just over discussed uh, pictures in this week's uh, Entertainment Weekly. Uh, Johnny Depp. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Penelope Cruz. So they're reuniting the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean cast. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Josh Gad. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, as you mentioned. Uh, Daisy Ridley, a.k.a. Uh, uh, Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Um, Judy Dench, because I believe every British film has to have Judy Dench in it now. Is that it kind should. of a, you know. It should, yes. I think that's part of the requirements in order to get oh, funding. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton. Mm. Hopefully someday Leslie Odom Jr. will get to play someone in the modern day. Um, I believe he's actually, <laughs> he's actually a trapped time traveler who cannot appear in any modern day production. So. <laughs> he disappears um, anytime after 1925. <laughs> Josh Gad, it'll be very interesting to see how he does with a non-snowman role. Um, Penelope Cruz, I mentioned. Uh, let's see, who else? Olivia Coleman, uh, Derek Jacoby. These are these are actors you don't, you may not recognize them, but you're like, oh, it's that guy, you know? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, Willem Dafoe playing a scary German character who will be, you know, the only actor who was more frightening than his villain mask, uh, Willem Dafoe from Batman. Yeah, the Green uh, Goblin in in Spider Man too. He was. See, and I will but... always think of William Defoe or William Defoe as the guy who was in um, Boondock Saints, which was an incredible movie. But again, you talk about a freaky actor. <laughs> he kind of takes every role to eleven. Yeah, if you look on the one hand, obviously he's got this kind of um, charm that he's you know thinking about Lost Highway and uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico and things like that. But could you imagine just being William Defoe all day? 
and uh, you go to McDonald's and they you mess up your order. Didn't he play Jesus in a bad Jesus movie? Yeah, Last Temptation of Christ. By that was it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna skip right over that. Okay, good. Uh, I'm just picturing you know him at the. I ordered a quarter pounder. This is a Big Mac. I mean, the, the guy behind the counter, <laughs> right? I mean, it's Willem Dafoe, who's, you know, and, and, could there'd be a little, little charm to that. Yeah. I didn't order this particular <laughs> Well, and, you know, we on this show give reboots a hard time. Um, but in reality, if you're going to reboot a movie, this is a great time. This movie hasn't been done for a while. Yeah. It does tell a good story. And to have the ability to bring together a star-studded cast like this, it's going to be a movie event experience. And that's kind of fun. Yeah, it, well, you know, when they haven't done a remake that's been widely seen in 20, 30 years, I'll cut you more slack than if it's, you know, oh, we're doing Spider-Man's origin story again. You know, I haven't seen that in, you know, since last year. Absolutely. And again, when you have a cast like this, it brings it together. Suddenly it makes it more of an event. Um, this seems like it's going to be fun. It's going to be entertaining. And again, when you look at the cast, there isn't someone on it that doesn't deserve to be there, so to speak. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how they bring these characters to life. Well, we've talked about upcoming uh, pop culture and, and you know, movie features we're really looking forward to. But not all the news can be good. And we'll talk about the things that we're kind of dreading right after this. I am Groot. You got a date, skin's looking great, cause Clarice Hill's ace. Face to face, face to face to face. See you at eight, skin's looking great, CJ's the place. Face to face. Clarice Hill gives you great looking skin, even close up. Inside, it kills bacteria to dry the pimple. Clarice Hill's ace, face to face. Outside, it soaks up all the excess oil. Feel it great, your skin's looking great, cause Clarice Hill's ace. Clarice for skin that looks great, even close up. Face to face. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And Mickey, take your pick out of the things coming down the pike that just don't look all that appetizing. Would you rather dine on some goop, listen to The Handmaid's Tale, or just pay more for television streaming fees? Well, let's start out with our girl, Gwyneth. Because in many ways, I feel like we've failed, Jim. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so let me say, because you, you mentioned this on Twitter a few weeks ago when the, the news first broke. Longtime listeners of this show know Gwyneth Paltrow has this kind of catalog lifestyle online magazine thing called Goop uh, that generally offers ludicrously unrealistic and expensive advice to ordinary people so we can live lives more happily the way Gwyneth Paltrow does, ranging from the tasteless to um, just asinine to occasionally sexually obscene. Wasn't there like some, was it a vagina necklace or something like that or... There, have been a, there were the ruby boobies. Ruby boobies. Okay, yeah. There you and go. then she did try to pitch us on a $15,000 vibrator. Yes. There we that go. we all needed to have. And, like, and of course, your... she's known for, you know, doing all kinds of things to her woohoo. Yeah. Also, get your, um, your boyfriend his profile in a rug uh, and all, all kinds of stuff where you're like, there is not a boyfriend alive who would look at that gift and say, oh, that's fantastic. Um, that's just what I wanted. Gwyneth Paltrow's inability to perceive what other people don't actually like her gifts have left her with the point where she thinks she's full of great gift ideas and eager to share them. <laughs> and advice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the weird thing is, is that so, so we, we've been making fun of this online catalog for a long time. And am I understanding this cor correctly, Mickey, that it's becoming a, like a print magazine and catalog? Which is, which is absolutely stunning. Yes, it is going to be coming out once a quarter. 
a, a print magazine. She's partnered with Condé Nasty. And here's here's what I, I, I would like to know. We've been told by everyone that print is in decline, correct? Yeah, guys, I was about to say, print is allegedly dead. Right. And good good news, everyone. Gwyneth Paltrow's bringing it back. Right? Like, do we really think that people are going to go purchase this magazine? Well, when they can I, find I, her ridiculous advice online? Uh, I'm in the magazine business, Mickey. I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want to throw too many stones at anybody buying a magazine. Maybe they go to the newsstand or the bookstore for goop and they end up buying National Review or something. So I'm not betting on that. I'm guessing, I'm guessing the Venn diagram of those readers doesn't overlap a heck of a lot, but, uh, you know, maybe somebody picks it up out of like, – like now we, we've made fun of it so much, Mickey. I almost want to look at it out of curiosity. Oh, absolutely. But let's not kid ourselves. This is the ultimate vanity project. This is the Oprah O magazine for Gwyneth. Yeah. And, and now we're giving her an additional platform where she's going to believe that people actually care. Okay. How many people – look, look – okay. All right. People would point out with, with fairly, Mickey, that you and I have talked about her – if not every other show, let's say one out of every three shows, she does something ridiculous and we feel a need to share this with our listeners. So in some strange way, we do care, don't we, Mickey? I suppose. I find her entertaining at best, but I, I just find it – I find it fascinating that there's enough of a following of Goop that they feel like taking it to print will be the next logical step for them. Well, then here's the next thing. Do you offset the costs through advertising? Meaning that maybe it doesn't cost that very much to put together this magazine if whatever the, the Ruby Booby maker or something like that, whoever is making these products that Gwyneth Paltrow falls in love with. Um, you discussed uh, Kim Kardashian and her Instagram and uh, uh, the, the, the amount of endorsement deals celebrities can get. This is a quiet back deal endorsement deal. Oh, absolutely. Right. So, so that's how you know, this, maybe this will be a, a cost effective uh, publication for, for Gwyneth Paltrow and everyone involved. Um, I, I don't know about that. It you know, only works if people actually purchase it after the first edition comes out. True, true. Yeah. Um, now, here's the next thing. I, I, you know, a lot of people would say, Jim, who are you to judge Gwyneth Paltrow? Uh, who are you to mock her every week? Clearly, you're doing this because you're part of the patriarchy. We're living in the Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> um, Nikki, many people, almost every review of the new series, uh, on-demand series, The Handmaid's Tale, says it's so relevant today. It's more relevant than ever. It's such a metaphor for our time. So how are you enjoying living in this oppressive society that if you actually read the book, um, run is, is largely in place to prevent non-elite men from having any sexual outlet? Uh, I can't think of anything that represents modern America more than that. Right, Mickey? Well, that's the whole problem with this whole it's so relevant right now. Now, um, I, I, first of all, I, I tend to believe that these people obviously don't understand, one, how old the story is. Um, because obviously it, 1980s, this was supposed to be about Reagan and Thatcher and, and, you know, those cultural changes, not today. Yes, of course, those cultural changes, because now we're all running around um, in veils and only the lesser of us are getting pregnant. Yeah. You know, so I, so I, the irony is that the, you know, because of the Netflix series, people are debating it now. But I remember having amongst my group of friends sometime, I want to say early, sometime in the first, Bush, uh, first term of George W. Bush, the topic came up and some of my left of center friends adore that book. Uh, one of my right of center friends loves the book as a story about living in an oppressive uh, religious society. She didn't really buy into this idea. You have weird friends, Jim. 
They're they're great. You've met most of these people. They're wonderful. I'm just saying, like saying that you love The Handmaid's Tale is kind of like saying like you love 1984. Well, okay, okay, okay. I don't know whether I'd say I love 1984 or Brave New World, but I would certainly say there's there's a lot to be learned from them, and I think they're certainly very thought provoking. But see, I um, think Handmaid's Tale kind of falls in that same idea of you know it's a dystopian society. If you're into that type of storyline, yeah, yes. But, if you're into dystopia. Right. Um, I happen to not be. And I've read them all. I've read all three of the ones we just talked about. And it's one of those things where, yes, it does tell a story. Theoretically, it's some kind of warning. However, there is absolutely nothing going on in our culture today to lead us to believe that The Handmaid's Tale is any closer to coming true. Yeah. And I, I, I tore into this a little while ago, got a lot of pushback from people who adore the book and it's less about that. My main gripe are the people who say, this could happen in America. Well, the first thing is you'd have to believe that uh, a majority of American Christians would, one, decide to completely repeal the First Amendment. Uh, no freedom of speech and a wholehearted embrace of police state. Elimination of freedom of religion uh, for any differing faith. Uh, I mentioned these social things because everyone's like, oh, it's all about the Handmaid's Tale. It's about, all about forcing women to get pregnant. Yes, but in society, it's only the elite men who get to do that. Uh, this is all driven by some sci-fi mass infertility issue and things like that. But to me, yes, like, because the elite women cannot produce children. Exactly right. Like that's the ultimate backstory that seems to get lost on a lot. At of the heart of the Handmaid's Tale, very few people are getting any, and almost nobody is enjoying it. <laughs> right. That sounds right. like a popular is, movie is to that, me. Do you look to you at all like American society today? Right? I mean, like this, so th that's the one thing that bothers me. But the second thing that bothers me, and this is where I got into really, you know, strong arguments. If Margaret Atwood had decided to create a fictional story called Gilead, about this oppressive society which women have no rights because of a strict religious regime, if she'd said it in Saudi Arabia, it would have been a friggin' documentary. <laughs> right? This is not, you know, uh, uh, completely theoretical. Yes, this, this does have uh, very accurate things to say about modern world. Just not about Christian societies. You look at human rights organizations' assessment of just about every Muslim country. Before someone accuses me of being anti-Muslim, I lived in Turkey for two years. Turkey, by comparison, is one of the good guys, which I think is saying a lot, particularly mm. these days. Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, Pakistan, you go down the list. There are plenty of Muslim countries where women effectively have just about no rights. You want to talk about you know, uh, genital mutilation inability to, to uh, live their own lives, living under the oppression of their fathers, abuse, Sudan, you name it, it's out there. So yeah, Margaret Atwood, there really is a world full of, of rampant uh, uh, hatred of women and brutality of women and abuse of women. You just don't find it in Christian societies the way you find it in Muslim societies. But for obvious reasons, we don't want to talk about this. We have a relatively apolitical podcast. I'm sorry to have taken everybody there, but... Mickey, no, I just I think, had to I get it off my chest. I think it's very accurate because this is something that's being discussed in pop culture as though we should all be terrified that someday in the very you know, near future, suddenly everything's going to change in our world. And that's what you're talking about, a radical change. This is not something that you ease into <laughs> in the sense that you know, we've got infertile women um, in the you know, upper tier of society and they can't have children. So in order to continue the procreation of society... These handmaids are given, they become vessels. We also have to recognize that like every time a sci-fi story comes out, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's some type of harbinger yes. of things to come. 
It's not necessarily a prediction, uh, but even uh, I'm even going to have to defend Margaret Atwood here and say I don't think she, you know, she made the storyline taking place in the within the lifetime of the protagonist because she needed some character to remember how things used to be, i.e., modern society as it was in circa the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, otherwise, you have to say, oh, generations ago, women had freedom and rights and stuff like that. But then you're talking about a story that takes place hundreds of years in the future. Mickey, to me, the best news is that because all of the um, uh, television streaming services are increasing their fees. Fewer people will see it, um, and that's the good news. That's the, you know that's the only good news about having to pay more for Netflix and and yeah, Hulu is jacking up their fees to one of the premium rates is now thirty nine dollars a month. I'm like, some people pay less than that for their cable. I was about to say, remember when we used to complain about cable companies? <laughs> well, you know, and somebody tweeted out the other day. I thought it was really interesting. Um, all of these streaming services are great. Can't wait till somebody bundles them. Ha! <laughs> And basically reinvents uh, cable companies. Yeah. Flash forward in time to the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of where we're at because we've gone to the point where everything's so a la carte. Now people are like, well, I'd like to get a streaming service. Kind of covers everything. We're still not we're at the a la carte day. spot, yeah, though. You know. I still want cable to sell me six or eight channels that are the only channels I ever watch and don't send me any other channels. When we get there, we'll call it a la carte. When we get there, we'll call it actually servicing the client. Because I've realized, Dave, there are, you're absolutely right, there's less than 10 channels on my 7,000 that I have that I watch on a regular basis. Um, And I could pretty much do without everything in the middle. And I I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but it would be really cool if we did. And hopefully my cable bill would then be less than $200. (laughs) Cable companies make money from people who want to be carried on their system as long as that is reality we will never not get 500 channels beamed into our houses never you know i've I, you talk about changing habits uh, i found out that a couple of months ago i figured out that i have youtube on my uh cable package so i can click through and just look for you know youtube videos i'd say on any given night when there's nothing good on and i have only about you know a half dozen shows that i watch regularly I will watch YouTube uh, for a lot of time and everything from, you know, uh, epic rap battles of history, uh, how it should have ended. Uh, a lot of there are a lot of people out there who do kind of what we do, making fun of pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, like, it's honestly better than, you know, hey, it's another sitcom or, you know, legal drama from, you know, powerful <laughs> network. You just shake your head and clear your head and watch YouTube and you'll forget about regular TV. It's full of really fun and interesting stuff. And you can learn how to do just about anything. Oh, I want to build a car from the ground up. Absolutely. There's a YouTube video for that. And that's fantastic, right? So all of this choice is great. All of these options are great. They're connecting us. They're dividing us. And then we've got social media, which is supposed to bring us together, right, Jim? And it sort of is. So we're going to talk. Watch people kill each other or die. (laughs) All of those Facebook Live videos, they've been pushing you to video. We're going to talk about how they've gone a little wrong. Coming up next. 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. I am group. We got Living in the 90s. Two and a half hours of the coolest songs on two CDs and two cassettes. Check it out. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. And great news, everybody. If you're looking for work, 
As mentioned in our fake uh, sponsor at the beginning of the program, Facebook is indeed hiring 3,000 more employees, adding them to the community team to review videos on the social network. After several recent surface weeks, including that featured murders and suicide, including a father live streaming the killing of his own daughter. Um, yeah, so uh, happened in Thailand. Was up on for about twenty four hours before the video was taken down. Um, saw the murder of uh, the murder in Cleveland. The suspect Steve Stevens detailing his plan and confessing to the killing. So um, I, I look at that, Mickey, and my first thought: I figured this was rare. 3,000 employees. Does this mean like there's this like a really terrible epidemic of people live broadcasting their violent crimes? Yes. I think we started realizing there might be a problem um, when, when obviously it starts breaking out about people videotaping their own murders and things of that nature. However, you might recall over the winter, one of the things that Facebook did with their advertising off of Facebook, which is pretty rare, they were advertising all over television asking people to just go live go live with anything doesn't matter what it is just go live and we've now created a situation where anyone can have an audience now we knew this right we knew that this could be done there's youtube there's all these other social media yes periscope i I actually use periscope more than i use facebook live i've never gone live on facebook maybe we should do that at some point jim um however Maybe it's because I haven't really been in a situation where I've thought the whole world needs to see this. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're probably the biggest exhibitionist I know. So mm-hmm. if you don't feel that urge, you know, but the other thing was I remember seeing those ads and thinking, you know, this is going to encourage a lot of Americans who the world really doesn't need to hear from. Um, and it does. I, I'd like to run counterattack ads saying no one cares. Stop live broadcasting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and and again, this is one of those things where, you know, they've built in their audience through their Facebook and family friends. And we've talked a little bit about how Facebook can be overdramatic at times, where people tell the story they want you to read. Um, It's very much a, you know, part diary, part fiction. Yes. Um of of people's lives. And I think that adding the video element of it, you're bringing in sight, sound, motion, and emotion that you get through a video. And suddenly people feel like this is the way to kind of take it up a notch. And so those who have the intent to do harm to others see it as a way of having an audience for that. Um, there's a certain element. You know, keep in mind that we, we do have the hot criminal who's now modeling. Oh. The hot felon. Um, and so no, I think there's, there's a disconnect in some people in our society in general about what is acceptable and what is not. We've already known this because of what people post on Facebook. You read things and you think, oh, God, I didn't need to know that. Why would you tell everyone that? And now they're able to do it with just a click of the button. You know, Mickey, I'm going to take this opportunity to, again, vaguely pitch or tout the uh, novel that I have finished. It's right now on an editor's desk. They have not said, yes, we love it and want to publish it yet. But they haven't said, no, we don't want to publish it yet either. So I'm not going to rush them on that decision. But um, one of the themes was uh, what, what frightens us in life, terrorism and social media. And the idea that uh, in a world where everybody can record everything live with their phones, uh, that a lot of things that you know, we, we've heard about from a distance, Columbine, right? Uh, there certainly were a lot of phones in the day of 9-11, um, as we entered this era of the ubiquitous cell phone camera, we've had we've been able to viscerally experience what people experienced 
during some of the darkest moments of, of terror attacks and shootings and things like that. And so in some ways, is this a force multiplier for the fear factor of terrorism, right? That, you know, you can only terrorize a certain group of people in one building or one school or mm-hmm. one public place. But through social media, millions of people can experience the terror and the fear uh, and everything that goes through it's your coming. minds and all that stuff. And, and, you know, so this is obviously a big theme in the book. I wrote it as fiction, and I'd really like the world to stop catching up to my worst case. <laughs> no, but, I mean, it's definitely coming. We have already seen, you know, when, um, when the terror attack took place in Orlando, we saw people sending out their last tweets, right, taking pictures and sending out tweets. But at that point, Facebook Live really wasn't a thing yet. Um, and we didn't see necessarily people going immediately to grab their phone to start videoing the carnage. But it's coming because, one, we've got a generation beneath us, um, the the millennials, that as a rule, their hand is pretty much attached to the phone. And they think absolutely nothing of just pushing that button and bringing everyone into their world. And so ultimately what we're what we're going to see have happen um, is something like where you have a school shooter or where you have a terrorist attack or where you have something awful happen. I mean, it could be natural disaster as far as earthquakes, mm-hmm. things like that. We've already seen a lot of those videos come through. But when people have that phone so quick to, the, to grab it, to turn it on and share everything with the world, there's no filter there. And I, I have to give Facebook credit. Like, I don't know if 3,000 people can do it. I don't know if 10 people could do it. I don't know if 300,000 people could do it because what it's going to be is a matter of when there's a mass event, Mm. it's going to be multiple accounts streaming, not just one. They might be able to handpick one or two and pull them off, um, although they've been extremely slow at it now. So maybe that's why they decided to step up uh, that particular department. But when you have a mass um, casualty situation and you have many people involved, they're not going to be able to pull it all down. And the question becomes, you know, is, is that good? Is that bad? What are the long-term effects of that? Absolutely. I think it's an opportunity. One of the things that, you know, was old school terrorism was to create a small device, draw people in, draw the media in, and then create a larger device so Mm -hmm. that everything's captured by the media. Well, now we don't have to wait for the media to get there. That's a, a very astute observation there, Mickey. I was thinking about um, we have a, a – Fox News used to show the live broadcasts of the high-speed car chases, usually out in L.A. where they had all the news choppers following them around. And it always made for good television, and you were always waiting for the crash, right? At some point, he was going to go through a, a red light, and some truck would run into him, and you, know, you watch the guy get arrested. They don't do that anymore because they accidentally broadcast a guy suicide live. And I believe it was Shep Smith was anchoring it, and he kept telling people, guys, we got to cut away. We gotta, and then the event happened. Um, you can still find that on YouTube if you're a particularly uh, macabre soul. And, and for obvious reasons, at some point, Fox News said, okay, when, when we're broadcasting these circumstances live, at some point, the likelihood of live broadcasting someone losing their life is something we don't want to do. That, 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 you know, whatever, whatever news value it may have, whatever... Uh, however good it is for ratings, it is definitely the truth. It is not something that needs to be uh, shown to a mass audience. And obviously, even on other you know programming, you know they'll say, "Look, this the following footage may be disturbing." Mm-hmm. There's a big discussion about the. Uh, it was right by your neck of the woods, right, Mickey? The Roanoke guy who sh- killed the the camera woman and uh, the cameraman and the yes, killed her on right? air. Uh, my colleagues in NR were vehemently opposed to that broadcast. I'm like, you know, it is the truth. 
right? I completely understand if you know somebody doesn't want to watch it and doesn't uh, certainly wants to be warned if, if a television station is going to show it. You may decide that's that's too intimate a moment that anybody should should be kind of witnessing it. On the other hand, it's what happened. And if you really think that these sorts of issues, whether it's uh, uh, serious mental problems or gun violence or however you want to define what happened there, this is the consequence. And, and so I, I myself would not support uh, any outside force saying, no, you can't broadcast that image. Now, obviously, you know, Facebook, I'm sure, is uh, contemplating fearful lawsuits or just wondering, is this something we want to be associated with? Uh, well, so it I can't also kind of falls into the line of dumb criminal. Because while we're talking a lot about things coming from like the victim perspective of someone being in that situation, if you are a criminal and you are setting out to go kill someone, rob a bank, whatever, and you say, hey, I'm going to be doing this live on Facebook, they're going to catch you. Yeah, you yeah, know what, though? That, uh, that, that bothers me because the classic go out in a blaze of glory guy like Columbine, they, they assume they're going to die. They think they're going to die. And what they want is the most amount of attention to what they're doing prior to yeah. dying. And social media is really opening itself up to Columbine guys times 1,000 walking around broadcasting live while they kill people knowing they're going to be dead in 10 minutes but not caring. But exactly. isn't that the reason that half the people go to social media? Not to see someone kill themselves, but because they want to have the breaking news. They want to see it live. Doesn't mean it should be broadcast. That's but all there, I'm saying. But then again, how do you stop? Like, how do you how do you make that decision about, well, we're going to let everybody go live. Yeah, it's, it's counter to the flow, isn't it? Social media is right. trying to get everything all in the now. And at the same time, they've got a real problem here, needing to edit this horrible stuff and really being torn in two different directions at the same time. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of years because I don't know how popular the Facebook Live app is because, again, for me, I, I've just not really felt the need to go there yet, but I know a lot of people use it. And the question becomes, does it become something where everyone uses it occasionally or does it start to kind of wane off because of these few bad eggs or apples, if you will? As I was going to say, you know, the, the, you can tape for your, your life for the whole world, but is anybody watching? You could be like horse racing 364 days a year. Uh, we'll be talking about that in our next segment right after this. Hi, I'm Mike Wallace with a sensational shortening discovery for better baking and frying. It's Procter & Gamble's Golden Fluffo, the first all-new shortening in 40 years. It's rich. Its color is golden yellow. And what a pie it makes. Richer looking, better tasting, more appetizing. But let's hear what Mrs. Thelma Styra, Indiana State Fair baking champion, had to say about Fluffo. I love Fluffo. It makes such a golden brown pie. Oh, man, that's some apple pie. Well, Mr. Wallace, that's a prettier pie than I ever baked with plain white shortening. And look how flaky it is. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Makes pie crust so rich. Like cooking champions, get richer looking, better tasting, more appetizing results in everything you bake or fry. Get golden fluffo. If I told him how I make Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing, he'd never try it. I ate it. This dressing's delicious. It's different. 
You see, the Hidden Valley fixings turn mayonnaise and buttermilk. What'd you say? I said we're out of butter. Oh. Into an extraordinary salad dressing with a fresh, lively flavor that's delicious, like he says. Edith, who are you talking to? I'm talking, uh, it's only the TV, Ralph. Delicious Hidden Valley Ranch, the original flavor buttermilk dressing with the original taste. The San Pedro Beach Bugs. B-U-N-S, Bugs! What is it? It's a police dog. They're cunning. He's undercover. Oh, boy. But they get a surprise from Charlie's Angels, the San Pedro Beach Bums, right before 49ers versus Steelers on NFL football. This is a cubic foot. There are five more of these inside the new Chevrolet than there are inside this year's older style full-size cars of Chevy's nearest sales competitor. That's based on U.S. government estimates of vehicle interior size as reported in the 1977 EPA Guide for New Car Buyers. The new Chevrolet with five more cubic feet of room. It stacks up beautifully. Now that's more like it. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, and we're almost at the end of our program. Traditionally, this is where we would discuss this week's Trivial Tuesday contest, but... Um, we didn't have one this week. So instead, we're looking ahead. This weekend is the run for the roses, the Kentucky Derby, the only horse race that anyone in America pays attention to. And I'd argue it's simply because they want to drink mint juleps. I, I, I think that that's a fair assessment, except for the fact that horse racing is the sport of kings. And there are still a lot of people who are active and involved in the horse world. However, I think you're absolutely right in the, the sense that the general public doesn't start paying attention until the K- Kentucky Derby. And then, and only then, if someone does exceptionally well, do they start paying attention to the Triple Crown. Yes. That, that, that gets drama. That gets attention because it hasn't happened forever. I had friends who won tickets to the Kentucky Derby a few years ago. So they dressed up in the ostentatious, you know, giant hat and, and seersucker and, and, you know, all the, the look you're supposed to have. <laughs> I, at least judging from the Facebook pictures, they got smashed on mint juleps. Um, and I don't know if they want any money, but they had a very nice time. So I'm sure it's a lot of fun. If I lived in Kentucky, I'd be really into it. Or if somebody was throwing a Kentucky Derby party, I'd be happy it's to. It's kind enjoy. of on my list, actually, of things to do. Um, we here in Richmond have had races for years. We you know, have racetrack out there. They used to have an event called Strawberry Hill Races. Um, kind of opened up the spring and everyone would go out and we'd tailgate and we'd dress up and we'd wear hats and there were themes every year and a significant amount of drinking. Mm. Um, and, and the goal always was for first timers was to ask them at the end of the day if they saw a horse. <laughs> and I think that plays very much into the whole idea of the Kentucky Derby. It's about the event much more so than the, the races themselves for most people in attendance. And I think it's a lot of fun. It's a very American tradition. And it's one that I support wholeheartedly because I like horses and I like booze. Okay. And let's There's face a, it, I like big funny hats too. There are a bunch of things that I'm a casual fan of. Uh, baseball, basketball, hockey. These are all things that I will pay attention to uh, towards the championships or intermittently when somebody's on the verge of a record or something. I am struck by Kentucky Derby weekend, the number of people who I'm fairly certain don't follow horse racing at all, who have adamant positions on which horse people should bet on. I'm always struck by that. That sense of like, no, no, no. Yeah, everybody becomes an expert. It's just like yeah. everything else. Like one weekend in, they've seen ESPN in the morning, and now they know who the winners are going to be. There you go. And, you know, oh, this, this horse doesn't run well on this kind of track and all that kind of stuff. I'm saying, you know, I, I've asked many, many horses if they think uh, they have the best chance. And the funny thing is, Mickey, all of them say nay. 
Like, I am really sorry that I didn't get to a Trivial Tuesday this week, guys, but I promise we'll have those coming up next. One of the ideas, I want to run this by you guys. What did you think about asking our listeners what their first or their worst job is? That is the sort of thing people love talking about, so I would endorse it. Uh, Maybe two separate questions, because the first one will always be, Ah, uh, you know, I started, you know, uh, the equivalent of walking uphill both ways to school. <laughs> um, it's always a terrible job. And it's usually, you know, because, you know, and, and, you know, every CEO can say, oh, I started out on the, the shop floor. I started out behind the counter. Or, mail room. Uh, mail room, exactly. That yep. was the traditional, you know, that's where I started from. The worst job, I think, is probably, you probably got, might get more, more interesting stories out of that one, though. I think more, more variety in what people define as their worst job because I'm sure there are some people who would say um, maybe being stuck in an office is the worst possible job they could imagine. Uh, other folks would certainly say, you know, I'm thinking about uh, loading trucks in a warehouse back at Baxter Healthcare in uh, Edison, New Jersey is my, you know. I was thinking uh, of cleaning out stables. Oh, wow. <laughs> you think you have to deal with a lot of crap all day. <laughs> <laughs> There, there are a lot of quote-unquote dirty jobs out there um, and a lot of first jobs and worst jobs. So I think that's one we might discuss with our listeners next because I'm really curious to hear um, some of the, the great stories that I'm sure that you all have. And uh, I am sorry that we didn't get to it this week, but we will get to that next week. And uh, you guys aren't going to believe this, but we are actually coming up to the end of an hour. This hour goes by so very quickly. Thank you so much to everyone uh, for staying with us and being with us here every week. Um, and uh, you can always find us with our new shows and all of our old shows at soundcloud.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. Look us up on Facebook. Become a fan. Um, it's facebook.com sh- forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can also find us on Twitter at Jim and Mickey. He's at Jim Garrity and I'm at Bias Girl. And then our boy Dave Perkins is at Big Dave P on Twitter. So find us there as well. I am Mickey White, he's Jim Garrity, and you've been listening to the one, the only, Jim and Mickey Show. I am Groot. <laughs> I am Groot. No! Oh, that's the button that will kill everyone. Try again. I am Groot. Mm-hmm. I am Groot. Uh-huh. I am Groot. No! I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills With a trunk load of hundred thousand dollar bills Man came by to hook up my cable TV We settled in for the night, my baby and me We switched round and round till half past dawn There was fifty-seven channels and nothing on Fifty-seven channels and nothing on Fifty-seven channels and nothing on Well now, home entertainment was my baby's wish So I hopped to town for a satellite dish I tied it to the top of my Japanese car I came home and I pointed it out into the stars A message came back from the great beyond There's 57 channels and nothing on 57 channels and nothing on Bye-bye, John, our love's 
Judge said what you got in your defense, son. 